Bank Talk features thought leadership interviews with community financial institution executives on relevant banking topics. If you are that CEO or would like to be an executive one day, this is the podcast for you. Learn something new in each episode to improve the performance at your financial institution. And now, here's our host, Charlie Kelly. Hi, and welcome to Bank Talk. I'm Charlie Kelly, your host and partner at Remedy Consulting. Today, we're talking about the CFPB report on BNPL. And for those of you who are not familiar with the vernacular within the industry, you'll say, what the heck are we talking about today? So the CFPB is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and their report is on the buy now, pay later BNPL industry. Just as a quick briefing, we had done a Bank Talk podcast last year on the BNPL industry. It was in its infancy a bit, meaning that it had been getting a lot of public relations, kind of more or less related to the funding that some of these providers were getting and the new business model and that type of thing. So if you haven't listened to that episode, that may be a good idea. But the CFPB report just kind of brought out some more details. So they asked five of the largest BNPL operators, Klarna, Affirm, Afterpay, PayPal, and Zip, some information on how they do business. And then they did a quote unquote public notice and request for comments, which take to mean a survey. And then they tied it all together into an 83 page report. So if you've been seeing a lot of BMPL information in the media recently, you know, many of those reports are pulling snippets from this report. So in general, right, the reason we want to cover this, first of all, it's interesting. Secondly, we know that quite a few of our listeners probably don't have the appetite for reading an 83-page report. We'll treat this as sort of taking the Cliff Notes version rather than reading the entire book, you know, like you used to do when you are in high school. Today, I have with me Shane Haynes. Shane is the current chairman of the Kansas Bankers Association Board of Directors, and we're going to be talking about buy now, pay later. So let's get started with Bank Talk. Okay, so today I have with me Shane Haynes. Shane, you're a busy guy, it sounds like, (laughs) right? and, And just a couple of things that we talked about, I bumped into you at a Kansas Bankers event, but you know, besides running a community bank and being the current chairman of the Kansas Bankers Association Board of Directors, you also sat on a board at the CFPB, didn't you? I, yes, Charlie, thank you. First of all, thank you for inviting me to take part of this podcast. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, yes, I served on the, what they call a community bankers advisory council. And there are seven banks. It's a two-year term. And you meet quarterly with the CFPB. They, they have three different councils, a credit union, a large bank, and then a community bank. And I served two years on the community bank, which give a shout out, I guess, Senator Moran was the one who nominated me and, and started me through that process. So it was it was a great opportunity. It was just during the pandemic. And so where we started and then the next year and a half of my two-year term were quite a bit different than what I, we thought we were going to be talking about. But it was still a great opportunity and a great great way to serve the industry. Great. Excellent. So at least you know what CFPB stands for, which I, I actually explained uh, prior to getting you, <laughs> just to make sure. We never know who's listening, so 
I figured sure. somebody better understand what the term means. <laughs> okay, awesome. So let's get into this report a bit. I'm going to wax poetic here for just a second, but then I wanted to get your opinion on it. As a brief intro, this buy now, pay later industry is an industry that thrives on small purchases. Generally speaking, they're done at, a, at a, on a retail site. The purchases are repaid in possibly small, two, three, four small equal payments. And generally speaking, they promote them as no interest and really have virtually no collateral because the items are perishable, right? More or less. So when we say point of purchase, right, that's typically on a merchant's website. The BNPL provider hook into the website and, you know, you get to the end of your purchase on the, uh, let's call it, you know, Walmart's website, you'll get a BNPL, a buy now, pay later offer, you know, depending upon the you know, size of the purchase and a few other things they expect. So anyhow, this report carves out large consumer transactions, right? So I think of that as sort of, you know, anything tied to, you know, they require a plan tied to the item. So think of it as your, your water heater goes out, your dryer, or your refrigerator. Those are not included in this report. But I wanted to discuss a few things and then just get your opinion, Shane, on, on these. But here are some stats from that report. In the report, we learned that the data that they requested from these five BNPL providers is from three years, 2019, 2020, and 2021. I anticipate that the reason that it's only three years of data is this is a fairly new industry and maybe potentially maybe all of them did not have great transactions. But Shane, you and I were talking about this and the interesting thing about that, right, is that is also sort of pandemic years. So it throws an awful lot off, right? When you think about the, the data. The average BNPL transaction is $135 in uh, 2021, up from $121 per transaction in 2019. The loan volume from these five originators is $24.2 billion with a pretty high growth rate. But, you know, that might be expected, I guess, with only three years of data. Three more stats. Uh, the majority of the per tran revenue comes from the merchant. And then, you know, perhaps due to the loan values and the auto pay requirement, Charge-offs are in line with other personal loans, 3.8%. You know, and the final interesting piece that, I, that we pulled out of this data is that net transaction margins are 1% on the $135 transaction. So I'll stop there, Shane, and let you do some talking. Any thoughts, comments on those items? Yeah, you know, that's just fascinating. And you kind of alluded to it and, and picked up on it really quick. A 1% net margin on a $135 transaction works out to about $1.35. So yeah, you're going through a lot of work here for $1.35. And so you you have to make that up in volume, I guess, to make it very profitable, especially, and we may get to it a little bit later, but as it seems like that fee, that, that charge from the merchant is going down, then you really have to kind of question profitability of, of this type of a model, I guess, frankly. Yeah, and they they did in the report have a couple of comments on just some stress that's going to come along with you know more providers and more competition, you know, and and we can talk about those in a bit, but there may be some stress on those margins of one percent. Well, it is kind of a challenge from the banker, and this comes from a community banker that doesn't have a processing network. So take it with a grain of salt here that I don't come from a point of an expert. There are so many different ways that those payments can be ran, even if they are coming through the debit card system. 
Reg E changed a few years ago. And so what is kind of challenging is it changes how the payment is presented. And where I'm going with that is it can come across as what they call pre-authorized. So they have ran that and they have already pre-authorized that this payment can run through this person's account. From our side and from our customer side, we have a lot of our customers that have said, if I'm out of money, don't pay it. I don't want to be overdrawn. I don't want to pay the fee and I don't want to pay it if I don't have the money. But these pre-offs come through and we don't have a choice. Even if they told us, don't, don't pay it if I don't have the money, those pre-offs, we have to pay. They, they come through with a different code. And so I don't know how this report didn't seem to get into that. But what's kind of frustrating, I guess, from the bank, had customers come in, why did you pay that? I was already overdone. And it's not from the bank saying we collect a fee. We cannot charge a fee on those. And so the customer comes in, I told you I didn't want it paid if I didn't have the money, but the way the merchant ran the code, we have to pay it. And we've had some upset customers. And so this whole payment system is so complicated and complex and frankly changed a couple of years ago that it it's made this a little more difficult. And when you're doing the buy now, pay later, when you've got three or four payments coming in over a period of time, months, they can run those as a pre-op. That way they for sure get paid, which keeps their charge offs low, but it may actually harm the customer a little bit. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective. Never thought about it that way. So what you're saying is to some degree, even though the report focuses on how each of these BNPL providers is doing, they're not really talking too, too much about the consumer and what might be in their primary account, right, right behind the scenes, which is, you know, I'm not sure if it could force them into, you know, unpaid balances or overdraft fees or what have you, but certainly feels like it might be more complicated. The report, I'm sure, had to choose its battles. This data would almost have to come from a core provider, not necessarily the payment rail, because they may not have the access to they're just going to know that this payment was presented and paid or not in the fees. They're not going to know the backside. Was the customer overdrawn or not? And was there a fee or not? Did the customer want it paid or not? And so you would almost have to go to a particular core to get that type of data. Yeah, that's great. Great perspective. Okay, let me get your opinion on this next stat. So what I tried to do out of this report is just pick out three or four things we can talk about. As you and I talked about prior to this podcast, I'm not asking you to be a BNPL expert. I'm just looking for your opinion on how the community, any of the community financial institutions might just see this, right? How do you see it? How do you treat it? Just give me a, or your opinion on the stat. So here's stat number one that I wanted to talk to you about. We had a, a really interesting conversation on the first Bank Talk podcast about BNPL about the fact that these transactions might be taking away interchange revenue from community banks. In other words, if they were preempting a bank transaction and a potential card transaction that might normally have been run, let's say, on a debit card. Now the person just opts to go to the BNPL provider, and then the BNPL provider runs the transaction on their end. The report states that 89% of these auto payments are done through debit cards. So in other words, if I understand this model correctly, they would take a certain percentage up front. You have a, I'll call it a $1,000 transaction just to make it easy, right? Maybe 250 bucks comes out up front, and then you have three equal payments of $250. Those $250 are still being paid for the most part, 89% on a debit card. So I would think that those payments, those three payments might be subject to merchant fees, wouldn't they? 
can you just give me your thoughts and opinions on that? Uh, yeah, I, I definitely think they would still be subject to merchant fees. What might change, though, is the rail. That first one may run as a, you know, not as a pre-op, as they're going to get the account. They're going to say, yes, the money's in this, in there for this $250. We're going to take that today, and then we're going to change over to a, this other rail with a pre-op rail so that we for sure get our money or it's much more likely we'll get our money. It, it comes then to how much the payment is, if it's fraud, and if we can fight it, it's usually 50 bucks is kind of the number. It's still going to have interchange fee. It might get reduced if they move from, say, a Visa rail that's a percent of the transaction to one of the other rails, whether, you know, Zelle, Venmo, one of those. Not that they're better or worse. It's just they, instead of charging a percent of the deal, they charge a set amount, like 12 and a half cents, something like that. And so okay. then it kind of becomes the, the payment system is smart enough to figure out which is the most profitable to the merchant. And then they're able to run over that rail. Interchange really for a small bank, it's not an income generator. It's a service that we provide for our customers. That rail fee that the payment processor, whether that's Visa, Zelle, whomever, the fee that they're collecting really pays for their security, their upgrades to make the rail safe and secure for everyone else. And so the interchange has already kind of been knocked down enough. Where I think this thing can go if you have three or four payments is then they can maybe alter that rail for that second and third payment where there's still interchange income, but it may be a lesser amount. Mm, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's just an interesting dynamic, right? I mean, it, particularly if you get into this report and you look at how some of these folks make their money, right? Honestly, how they do on average make their money. And it is a combination of a few things. Interchange is honestly one of them, but then you have this, you know, backed out of there is this processing fee, payment processing fee. Even in their model, the model that the CFPB put out, the financials, it's kind of hard to discern what's revenue and what's expense and, do, and whether they exactly tie together, right? Yeah, seems like the revenue part of it's going down and the cost part of it's going up. Yeah, right. And we'll talk unit margin for loan in just a second. But uh, let me let me throw another stat at you because I think this is interesting as well, right? They discussed that the users of the service, right? So they discussed the users. The users, I would have always thought, right? Because at least originally when they talk about the areas where things are being spent, to me, it skews a little bit towards a younger user. Now, with that said, as they go through their statistics, I'm surprised to see that 31% of those holding BMPL loans are over age 40, and that usage percentage increased from 2019 to 2021. Give me your thoughts on that. That's just an interesting stat to me. I think it's great when you pick that up, because we're not talking about a you know $40,000 car here. This is a $135 clothing transaction. You know, we went and bought some Christmas gifts or something. And so I think that really changes. This isn't a major purchase that you would typically think would not be uh, something that would be put over three or four, four payments. The age is, is definitely a factor in that. What to me is very interesting is these numbers were ran during the pandemic. 19 was at 2021 were. And what we saw at the bank was a pretty dramatic shift in spending patterns over that two to three year period with customers changing what they bought, changing what they're willing to buy on time, 
And so as I look at this, it may mean a couple of things. One, it may mean that there was and there is a lack of savings, and, and you can kind of read reports about that average net worth and the average retirement savings of, of folks, and it is kind of scary. So it could be just a lack of savings. I think it could have also be just a fear of using that savings during the pandemic when they didn't know kind of where things were going and what where things were headed. And so it may be a lack of savings and a lack of checking account, you know, disposable cash. Very well could be just a fear of using up that savings. I need to buy clothes or I feel like I want to buy clothes and and I if they'll take it over three or four months, I'll do that as opposed to paying it out now. We had a lot of employees of smaller businesses. I, I'm going to pick on beauty, spa type businesses. You know, they just really didn't know where they were going to be open, when they were going to be open, how long they were going to be allowed to be open. And so there was some stress going through those guys' minds that I, I could see them making a different change in, in how they chose to buy something. I will say this, just kind of Jim Edwards, he was former chair of ABA, a good friend of mine. He made a comment during the middle of pandemic. He said, money has never moved this fast and it will never move this slow again. And I've hung on to that because, you know, he's just right. These payment rails, all of these options just exploded when everybody was buying from home, shopping from home. And now that now has become the new expectation of reality. And so it could be really interesting to see this same study in 23 and 24 when we have people going back out to stores and buying in person. It'll be interesting. Yeah, that's, a, that's those are some great perspectives. You know, to your point, I, I wanted to, I feel like I'm a statistical guy today because I'm reading off of a report written by somebody else. <laughs> but uh, to your point, here's something we should probably talk about just for briefly, right? When you look at the top three categories, of where these buy now, pay later, $135 average loans are coming from. The top, by far, even in 2021, 50%, over 50% is in apparel. The second one, which is 11%, so 60 between the two of them, is called personal effects. And that is sub-verticals, electronics, fitness, sporting equipment, games, hobbies, and jewelry. So between those two, 61%, which there's... Something to be said about the fact that those are not required, right? Those are probably vanity items, maybe potentially, right? Or uh, disposable income type items. And then the third one is called mass market. And in mass market, that's just under personal effects, 10% roughly, includes merchant from the following sub-verticals, department stores, discount wholesale, general goods, and general merchandise. Some of the things that we've talked about is potentially that grouping, at least in their head, doesn't fill in the everyday, right? So there's an everyday vertical here, which includes auto, transportation, groceries, food, drink, and utilities. That is less than 1% of these. I guess my point would be in the mass market that, again, could potentially be disposable, top three categories are over 70%. The everyday category, taking a loan for your everyday items, is less than 1%. So, you know, to your point of where's the money going, this isn't to buy a refrigerator. This is to buy something that makes it look better, at least in, in my opinion. You know, but, throw in beauty too. You know, that when you, if you throw in that next one, that's basically 80% are right. disposable goods that, you know, you don't generally want to be buying over time. That's not a good budgeting process. 
Yeah, it's something that if your kid ever did it, you'd yell at them for it, right? Yeah, at least exactly. in my days, right? $24 billion industry based around transactions that probably are head shakers is, you know, I guess the yeah. way I would think about it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, good perspective. I appreciate that. All right. Here's stat number three. And we only have four stats, so this isn't going to go on much longer. But stat number three is the unit margin per loan. Now, we talked about this a little bit, but, you know, we had questioned in the first podcast how these small loans could be profitable on a per loan basis. I think even in that podcast, I said, I can almost guarantee that they are not. And now I think as you read this report, we squeezed out a one percenter. There is a one percent net per transaction, depending on what they put in the buckets. I wanted to just talk about this a little bit, maybe walk us through what you saw there, just what's interesting in how they make their money. Just be interested in your perspective on that. Yeah, and then even looking, kind of drilling into some of the specifics of merchant discount fees in really a matter of two years went from 3.39% to 2.49%. And so that bucket of the revenue side dropped by 20%, 26%, I think was the math, in two years. And so that profitability is eroding very quickly. To the other side, the expense side of it, the processing, servicing side, didn't. It went down slightly, but really didn't. And so what you're seeing, the reason that worked, that model worked, even though the revenue stream each year went down, the total revenue stream went down each year, was the cost of funds were so cheap. They were going down as well. And they went down by more than what the revenue stream was going down. And so you had a declining revenue stream, but but aided and funded by cheap cost of funds. And Mm -hmm. so now when you're looking at, okay, so I'm looking at a net 1% revenue stream on $135 purchase. And now I'm looking at my cost of funds going up significantly. The the short-term money has gone up quite a bit. Long-term money is still a little bit cheaper, but the short-term it's real. And so to me, it was just an opportunity. You have the economy was rolling in 2019. You had a lot of goods on the shelves to move. You had very cheap cost of funds from the retailer. They said, we can do this to move our goods and get our name out there and keep everything rolling. Well, then we roll into the pandemic and that dynamic changes. And so now coming out of it, we're seeing the exact opposite, right? We have inflation. So we're having, we have too much money chasing too few of goods. And that brings about inflation. So now we have a slowdown in the production and the need of those goods, but you have a lot of money chasing it. And so it's going to be very interesting to see what that looks like in the next couple of years. If I could just supplement that a bit, here's some things that come out of this report in my head that might be useful, right? When you talk about the merchant discount fees, that's and again, I just ran some back of the napkin math. That's roughly sixty over 60% of the revenue, the gross revenue for these providers. And then, you know, interchange is the next biggest item. And between those two, they make up 75% of the revenue. So of that first category, which of 61% of their, 62% of their revenue, that's the category that dropped by 26% over three years, right? right? And again, whether it's due to competition or what have you, right? I would argue that there was probably in 2019, there was no competition as competition tightened Right. And again, you know, between competition and what you mentioned about the fact that there's maybe 
a little less merchandise sitting on the shelves. They're a little less anxious to try to dump it, right? That's 62% of their revenue has gone down by 26% in three years. Right. That's that's a really interesting one. And then when you look at the cost of funds, cost of funds is right behind payment processing and credit loss provisions for the largest expense. And that one, of course, is going to climb. You know, it'd be real interesting to see what 2022 looks like. It, it ought to look a little higher than 2019, I would argue. It's going to go up significantly. Yeah. I, I will say these merchant fees, there, there is a credit routing bill going through. And the argument for this bill has been, well, fees increased. Fees increased during, you know, the last year. Well, this evidence proves that it wasn't a fee increase. Now, while the dollars may have increased, the percent didn't. The percentage went down. And that's been Visa's standpoint the whole time is, no, the fees went down. Where the fees went up, your price of gas went from $3 a gallon to $6 a gallon. So the dollar amount went up, but it wasn't the routing networks taking more of the profit. It was just a percentage of the deal. And you can see evidence that they actually lowered their fee through that process. This is very interesting and I think is the factual data that I think has been flawed with, uh, with the Durban Marshall uh, proposed legislation. Yeah, that's a, that's a good perspective. And, and I, you know, it, it's interesting as I look at their payment processing servicing as a percent, I think this is as a percent of their revenue. Theirs doesn't vary, but I think your point's pretty well taken there, right? Is that, you know, these things are moving around. It'll be interesting to see whether or not that spikes as well as as they move forward. Right. Okay. Good, yeah, good perspective. So, I, again, 1% margin, you know, really, to me, very interesting, right? 1% margin with a lot of pinch on the margin, it right. would seem. It would seem to me. So yeah, This will um, look different, I think, in two years. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, like I said, I'm, I'm not 100% certain whether the CFPB plans to update their report. I mean, it's $24 billion industry, right? That sure seems like the per unit margins are not very strong. So it'll be interesting to see how big the industry is, whether it shrinks or, you know, the fact that it grew so fast could be COVID related. And it could be, you know, just the fact that there is a desire there for very small transactions, whether the industry survives is a whole different, or if it, if it does survive, it probably looks a little differently. You know, either the revenue has got to change, or the expense has got to fall. I don't see a lot of area for expense to fall. Yeah, based on right. what I'm looking at here, right? Kind of last concept here, but I wanted to drop one more concept in front of you and then we'll wrap this up. But so item number four, right? Coming from this report is that the BNPL providers do not report to the credit agencies today, right? Somewhere buried in this report, they worry about how many of these loans might be stacked, meaning one borrower has multiple loans with multiple BNPL providers. So if they do not report to the credit agency, is there a risk to other non-personal loans? So I just kind of want to get your thoughts on that. To me, it was a, maybe a bigger worry before you knew the size of the loan. You know, just kind of knowing what you know here. What are, what are your thoughts? I think really this is is the real crux of kind of maybe where the bankers are getting misunderstood on this. The banker's concern isn't about another, you know, competition in, in that market. You're right. The 135 transaction is not something that a bank is going to make a $135 loan. Do banks have personal lines of credit? Yes, we do, we do as well. And so is it a form of competition? Definitely. I'm not going to lie and say it's not. But that's not really, in my opinion, 
the banker's real concern. It's exactly what you're talking about since they don't report to the credit agencies. And I believe this is part of why the CFP was kind of going down this road. We pride ourselves and the customer comes in and they're wanting to buy a house or buy a car or buy it, you know, buy that refrigerator. We pride ourselves on looking at their debt to income, making sure it fits. We don't want to get them upside down. Sometimes there's still that factor of, well, you're tight, but you still need a refrigerator, you know, and so we try to work with those customers, but it only works if we have their full financial picture. And the consumer may not think about the $135 coat that they bought on buy now, pay later. And so they don't think to tell us. And all of a sudden, we've got somebody that's coming in that's too highly leveraged, can't make their payment and can't or can't buy groceries for the family. And that's a real concern right now to bankers in, in this inflationary time. And so we inadvertently then make them a loan to buy something and we increase that debt load and we put the customer in a bad situation. That really, I think, is the crux of it. I don't want bankers to be seen as fear of competition. We just want to be able to see the full picture. And the customer does too. It's not they're trying to hide it from us. It's just they don't think about it. The last thought I would have about that, and, and I think this too is where the CFBB is trying to go on top of, hey, should we report these to the credit bureau? Should, should we make these reportable transactions? But from a bank, there's also safety and soundness and security of America. And so any credit decision, we have to work through the know your customer. We have to validate and verify and make sure that this customer, you know, what typically the government issued non-expired photo ID. So we have to confirm that who this person is. And that has grave security ties behind it going back to 9-11. I understand that. But the buy now, pay later doesn't. And so while it's still just a source of goods, it's still money moving through the system that isn't as tracked, isn't as regulated, and doesn't have the same, yes, we know who is doing this transaction, and we know who where the money is coming from, and we know where the money is going. You're not going to see that on the buy now, pay later. And so I feel like this really is what the, the financial universe is probably should be concerned about, is who is doing these transactions and, and for what reason. Yeah, that's a great perspective. There's one other item buried in this report that I just, I want to read because it's just, to me, it's fascinating. It kind of parallels some of the things that you're talking about. But in 2017, a study published by the credit agencies found that consumers with at least one active personal loan, auto loan, mortgage, and credit card prioritized the personal loan payments above the other three, mm-hmm. right? And that that kind of surprised everybody. And then, and the hypothesis was sort of twofold. Number one, it's an auto pay. And number two, it's smaller than the other ones, and therefore they feel like they're chiseling away at something when they can't make the bigger of the, you know, if they can't make the larger payment, they'd rather make the smaller. So that must be, you know, psychological in some way, shape, or form. The concept of stacking, when you look at stacking these things together, I think, you know, conceptually, if there were a bunch of them stacked and those are the payments they're making, right, then the people that are reporting to the credit agencies might be at some jeopardy of, you know, the auto loan not getting paid or the or the mortgage or what have you, right? House, you know, and- yeah, the ones that are doing all the work to make sure that they know what the debt to equity is or the debt to income, right? We'll have customers, they, when they really have time to think about it, they'll say, return whatever, don't return my house payment, you know? I mean, right. it's a bigger picture. But there's that psychological, oh, just, you know, it's, it's just a hundred bucks or it's just 30 bucks. It's just whatever, let it go through. But when they really have time to sit back and think about it, yeah, don't, don't send my house payment back. So, yeah. yeah. Excellent. 
Well, this has been great, Shane. I, I pre- really appreciate you spending some time with us on Bank Talk, and um, I, you know, love the perspectives. I think I think um, you know, based on what I'm hearing here, the concerns that you have are probably pretty similar to other bankers that we've talked about. And you know, I just appreciate just putting a perspective around this thing for us. Thanks for the opportunity, Charlie, and I uh, look forward to hearing it come out. Thank you. Good luck with the Kansas bankers. Sounds Thank like you. you got some work to do coming up here. <laughs> Okay, so that's it for Bank Talk. I appreciate everybody listening in. Just interesting perspectives. Uh, you know, if you have the opportunity to read all 83 pages of this report, you know, we covered a portion of it, but there just are some, you know, really interesting insights into what this industry, this, this buy now, pay later industry is all about. For today, that's it. Thank you. On behalf of Bank Talk, have a good day and keep on learning. Thank you for listening to the Bank Talk podcast brought to you by Remedy Consulting. If you are interested in more Buy Now, Pay Later episodes, check out our previous one with Kia Haslett. If you'd like to present on the Bank Talk podcast, please reach out at banktalkpodcast.com. Thanks again, and we will see you in the next episode.